0: Welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And we're here with another episode for you today. This one, listeners, not from Pennsylvania. And
1: we don't have any crime updates for you. Not this week. So we just want to take a moment and thank you. We know there are so many true crime podcasts out there and only so many hours in the day. So we appreciate you setting time aside to listen to us. If you want to join the discourse, you can reach out to us on our website, criminal discourse podcast.com or on social media We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at criminal disc Pod and criminal discourse podcast. And one last thing, the views and opinions discussed on criminal discourse are just that our views and opinion, everyone is presumed innocent until convicted in a court of law.
0: That last bit will be really important for today's case. We do have someone convicted for the main crime that we're going to talk about, but he's associated with some other cases and there haven't been convictions in those. So we'll talk about the unsolved ones, some of the things that this guy is suspected of, but it's an important thing to remember. If he's not been convicted in a court of law, it's just some speculation. Now, we know that DNA evidence can crack even the coldest, hardest to convict cases. That's always a thrilling thing. Thing when that happens, and that includes the 1998 murder of 13-year-old Christina Williams. Investigators suspected just one man from the beginning, but it wasn't until 2017 that they finally had enough evidence through a DNA match to make an arrest. Charles Hollifield is a repeat sex offender with links to more assaults, disappearances, and murders that are still unsolved. Although there may be no such thing as closure after losing someone so tragically, pursuing their cases until someone is held responsible is always worth it. And Christina's story is a case in point. The events in today's episode take place within the Monterey Peninsula, located on the north central coast of California, which is along the United States Pacific coast. The area includes Pebble Beach Golf Course, considered one of the best golf courses in the country, and the Monterey Bay Aquarium, considered one of the best aquariums in the country. Author John Steibach of Salinas was one of the region's most well known residents. And in 2000, when a lot of the crimes we'll talk about today took place, the population of the peninsula was around 53000 The area is also home to Fort Ord, a U.S. Army base that shut down operations in 1994 as part of a national cost-cutting measure. At that time, about two-thirds of Fort Ord's 28,000 acres was rugged, undeveloped open space. Most of that land was given to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the rest was returned to the state for public use. Several hundred military families continued to live and move to the base after it closed, but thousands of boarded up buildings remained. Charles Holyfield, born January 10, 1961, grew up at Fort Ord, where his army sergeant father was stationed. Charles last appears in Seaside High School's 1978 yearbook as a junior, and he committed his first sexual assault during what would have been his senior year. Did he graduate from high school? I never found anything that said whether he finished or didn't, and I couldn't find him in the 1979 yearbook, so I'm not sure. I didn't see anything that said he dropped out either, so I can't, I can't say for certain. On May 29, 1979, 18-year-old Charles jumped a 17-year-old classmate of his, who we'll call DB, from behind while she was walking on a bike path in Fort Ord between Marina and Seaside. DB was a young-looking girl with straight brown hair, and she was on the smaller side, just over five feet tall with a slim build. This is going to be the profile of the victims you hear over and over again. Charles threw DB to the ground. He choked her, and then he held her down with a knee in her back. He brandished a knife at her, but when she asked him to toss it away because it scared her, he did. Charles pulled down D.B.'s pants and underwear and attempted to penetrate her, but he wasn't successful, so he demanded oral sex instead. D.B. refused, and instead of becoming more violent, Charles stopped the assault. He asked D.B. to help him find his knife and walk with him for a while, and she complied. D.B. shared that she had gone to fetch Middle School was attending Seaside High School. Charles said he recognized her from school and confirmed that they knew some of the same teachers. They also talked about music discovering that they were both fans of the Beatles. Eventually, Charles let DB go home, and she would later page through her yearbook to identify him and report the assault to police. Charles had already enlisted in the Army and started his basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky by the time she reported him. He was sent back to California and Fort Ord's troop quarters to face charges of assault with the intent to commit rape.
1: Which makes me think he either got his GED
0: or did graduate to get into the military. Correct. And I'm not totally sure at that time. If you were allowed to enter early or if you had to graduate, I'm making the assumption here that he probably did graduate and then then went in. Less than six months after his first assault on November 10, 1979, Charles Holifield ambushed a 14-year-old girl who was taking a shortcut through Fort Ord while walking home. Now, this is while
1: he's awaiting trial
0: for that first assault.
1: Is he still in the military or have they... He's still in.
0: Yeah, and he's living at the troop quarters there in Fort Ord. Like DB, the girl was short and thin with straight brown hair. Charles raped her behind Marshall Park Elementary School and then talked to her, mostly about school, until he heard sirens and fled the scene. The girl spotted Charles at the Fort Ord library two weeks later and alerted her father, who was an Army specialist, and he reported Charles and the incident to military police. Army investigators searched Charles' belongings They found incriminating evidence of the attack, but they decided not to press charges because he was already being prosecuted for DB's assault. That disappoints me. In January 1980, Charles was found guilty and sentenced to 19 months in prison. He claimed that he was framed and innocent of both
1: crimes. By this time, he would have been discharged from the military or he was in a military prison? He went to a California prison. He was discharged at this point, yes. Charles Holifield was paroled in
0: 1982, but remember, he only had one conviction to his name, even though it was two assaults, and he was required to begin reporting his address to authorities as a registered sex offender. Not long after Charles' release, on January 24, 1983, 20-year-old student Jennifer Morris of Pacific Grove disappeared during a late afternoon shopping trip. In 2011, her skeletal remains were discovered in a wooded area near the Del Monte Shopping Center, where she was last seen. Investigators working on Jennifer's case announced in 2015 that they have reason to suspect Charles could be her killer. However, it's not enough to press charges and her case is still unsolved. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of details why they think it's Charles, but this is another one he's connected to. And if it's true, that would have been his third crime at this point.
1: And first murder.
0: First murder. About three months later, on April 11, 1983, a small 14-year-old girl with brown hair who we'll call DJ, was walking home near Sunset in Pacific Grove. Charles Holifield, now 22 years old, grabbed DJ from behind, choked her, and dragged her away from the road to some bushes where he raped her. Afterward, Charles forced DJ into his car where he tied her hands and feet together with her own shoelaces. He used another shoelace to tie her to his car door by her neck. She would later say, I felt like he was going to kill me if I didn't comply. Charles drove DJ to a wooded area near Seaside High School, and raped her a second time. He didn't leave right away, so DJ started talking to Charles about God and forgiveness. She asked him to pray the sinner's prayer with her, and he did. Charles also agreed to take her to the local Salvation Army, where her youth pastor worked when she asked him to. There, he talked to a social worker and confessed to raping DJ. This is the only time Charles ever pled guilty to a crime, and in June 1983, he was sentenced to 17 years in prison,
1: for rape and kidnapping. So, this is his second conviction for assault. I mean, the first was the first victim rape? At, well, attempted rape.
0: In my opinion, it's a rape. Yes, it's but a rape. In the state of California, it's attempted rape.
1: So, this is his first conviction for
0: rape. Yes. Charles was paroled in 1992 after serving only about half of his sentence. This is another moment where I became disappointed. (laughs) He moved in with his parents in Marina upon his release, and then he rented an apartment in Monterey. In 1996, 35-year-old Charles began dating two women, Linda Silver and Lisa Johnson. His relationship with Linda was more casual, while he and Lisa sometimes lived together. In both cases, they got together and broke up a lot. Both women also reported that Charles was physically and sexually abusive. He had already been convicted of two serious felonies, and a third conviction would send him to prison for a minimum of 20 years to life, according to California's three strikes law. Linda and Lisa both claimed that Charles threatened to kill them if they were the reason he got a third strike, adding that he knew where to hide their bodies so they would never be found. In 1996, Lisa Johnson recalled having consensual sex with Charles in his pickup truck when he suddenly started choking her with some of her clothing. That lasted for at least a minute, and Lisa thought Charles might kill her before he stopped and then anally raped her. In 1997, Lisa was awoken in the middle of the night to Charles, once again, anally raping her. Charles became aggressive and violent whenever Lisa tried to leave him, Between January and March 1997, police say they responded to numerous domestic violence incidents between the couple. And I think this was both ways. I think sometimes it was Charles calling about Lisa, not just Lisa calling about Charles. Lisa later took out a restraining order against Charles, and he was ordered to serve 30 days in jail for battery, but they kept reuniting despite these violent cycles. In June 1997, A local newspaper published several Megan's Law flyers on its front page. One of those identified Charles Holifield as a repeat sex offender and revealed his address in Monterey. As a result of this, Charles lost his job and was evicted from his apartment. He became essentially homeless, sometimes staying with Lisa at her mother's apartment in Pacific Grove or her sister's mobile home in Prunedale when he wasn't living out of his own truck and motorhome. I've seen motorhome RV basically... Little trailer hitched onto his truck. In August 1997, so about two months later, Charles was hired by a cabinet maker in Sand City. This is because his brother made a personal referral for him. Within a year of working there, the owner allowed Charles to live out of his vehicle in the warehouse parking lot. Charles also spent time in his brother's home in neighboring Seaside. That house was just a few blocks away from where 13 year old Ekaterina. Sherbakova disappeared while walking home on April 5, 1998, around 8 p.m. Katie, as her family called her, was considered a runaway until 2010, when Cold Case investigators announced their strong suspicion that Charles Holifield was involved in her disappearance. This was based on newly developed evidence that, again, they have not revealed. Katie also had physical similarities to Charles' other victims. She was a small girl with straight brown hair. Katie had attended Fitch Middle School along with 13-year-old Christina Williams. Now, Christina's family had just moved to Seaside in November of 1997. Her father, Michael Williams, was a meteorologist for the U.S. Navy, so their family moved a lot to follow his assignments. Michael met his wife, Alice, in 1979 while he was stationed in the Philippines. They had a daughter, Jennifer, in 1980. They moved to Hawaii together where Michael was restationed. Then they had a son, Michael Jr., in 1982. They moved to Japan next, and that's where Christina was born on May 1st, 1985. California was Christina's first big move, but she seemed to adjust well despite being sad about leaving her friends in Japan behind. She joined her new school's chorus, she kept up good grades through the seventh grade. Her family describes her as quote, close to perfect, innocent, courteous, conscientious, hardworking, and reliable. She spent a lot of time online. I did too when I was this age back in 98. But she would ask for permission before doing things like joining a Beanie Baby collector's chat room. She asked permission for mom and dad first, and I think that's sweet. Christina listened to pop music like... Janet Jackson, Ace of Base, The Spice Girls, but Mariah Carey was her favorite. Her favorite movie was My Best Friend's Wedding, and she was hoping to see Titanic with her dad before it left theaters. Titanic, by the way, came out in 97, but this is back when movies were in theaters for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. and it was still in theaters at this time. For Christmas 97, Christina got an aquarium with angelfish. She proved to be an exceptional pet owner, and she told her parents she wanted to become a veterinarian. For her birthday the following May, Christina was allowed to adopt a pet dog. She picked a nine-month-old Collie Australian Shepherd mix at the local pound, and she named him Greg. Christina took full responsibility for Greg's care, taking him for walks on Fort Ord's many trails and bike paths. She favored a loop that started on the Parker Flats cutoff just behind her home on Nidge Megan Road and took 15-20 minutes to complete. And at
1: this time, Fort Ord is officially closed down.
0: Yes, there's still activity there, and people use it a lot. It's most of the peninsula. Like I don't live there. But my impression from it is no matter what town you're in, you're only a couple minutes from being on the base. At about 7.30 p.m. on June 12, 1998, Christina took her dog on one of these routine walks. It was a week into summer vacation and the sun wouldn't set for another hour or so. Christina's mother was taking a nap after dinner, her brothers playing video games on the computer, her father was at a work event, and her sister was spending time with her boyfriend. It was Michael Jr., Christina's 16-year-old brother, who realized around 8 p.m. that Christina still hadn't returned. Usually took about 15 or 20 minutes. Now it's been about 30. He woke up their mother, Alice, who searched the house from top to bottom while Michael Jr. set off looking for Christina on his bike. Neither of them found her, but they did locate her dog walking nearby with his leash trailing behind him. A few minutes later, Christina's father, Michael, arrived home from work, and by about 8.45 p.m., Michael reported Christina's disappearance to police. Alice and Michael Williams say that responding officers told them to wait 24 hours and try not to worry in the meantime. She's 13 years old. They're to wait 24 hours? And her dog's found walking alone? Maybe she just ran away. This is exactly what the family said to her. All of her stuff is here. She would never leave her dog. She doesn't have that many friends here yet. There's no, this is, of course, she didn't run away. But the police assured their family that the area is safe. Christina would most likely return home soon. And they're unhappy with that response. So Michael called his base commander and he was able to mobilize volunteers and get the FBI involved since Christina went missing on property that was recently owned by the federal government. Michael also called 3 nonprofit organizations that specialize in searching for missing children. Alice said, quote, that's when police started moving seriously and the media came. Now, on the other hand, the local police chief said that he entered Christina as a missing person abduction case right away not a runaway, and he requested a search dog. A few official searches were conducted in the immediate area until about midnight. Michael Williams searched the trails near his home with Christina's dog. That night, there was a sighting of a girl matching Christina's description small girl, straight brown hair, at a 7-Eleven in Marina. The store clerk saw her along with two other girls and a boy around 10.30 p.m. And this caused some of the officers to think Christina had run off voluntarily, despite her family's insistence that it was out of character. So I'm with the Williams here. I'm with you, Trish. This girl is abducted. We need to act super fast to find her. But I can kind of see, especially at the time, why they this is the frustrating thing we run into every time there's a missing person. The Monterey County community quickly rallied behind the Williams family. Christina's siblings put their summer plans on hold. Her parents took leave from work. They all dedicated themselves to finding her. Hundreds of volunteers joined officials in searching the area, and one tracking dog traced Christina's scent to a wooded area behind her home, then a couple hundred yards down the road, but it lost her scent after that. The FBI and local fundraising efforts brought the reward for information to $100,000. Even some local celebrities chipped into the reward fund and filmed public service announcements on the family's behalf. That included professional athletes, Clint Eastwood, who was a mayor of one of the towns in the area back then, and Christina's favorite singer, Mariah Carey. Local baseball teams made announcements before the start of their home games, pleading for information leading to Christina's whereabouts. Alice and Michael Williams made themselves available to as many media interviews as possible, appearing on America's Most Wanted, CBS This Morning, Larry King Live, and Oprah, in addition to their local news outlets. They said this was really hard on them, but at the same time, they feared that without the continued publicity, Christina's case would be forgotten over time. Multiple eyewitnesses came forward within that first week, and one of the earliest ones provided a promising lead. Fort Ord resident Stacy Murray was jogging two to three hours before Christina went missing in the same area when two men in a primer gray car pulled up next to her. They were pretty sketchy. They asked her age and then commented that she was too old after she told them she was 29. They drove off, but Stacy got a good enough look at them and their vehicle for investigators to create sketches that they quickly shared with
1: the public. At any time, did the police look like you mentioned that Charles had already been outed in a local newspaper. He's on the Megan's Law Registry. Did they start there to look at registered sex offenders living in the area? They absolutely did. And we'll we'll see their
0: efforts coming up here in a second. Several more residents also came forward to report similar sightings of these two men, both in their 20s, possibly Hispanic or Asian, specifically Filipino, like Christina's mother. One of them thin, the other one heavy set. They said they were driving this late 70s or early 80s model Mercury Monarch or Ford Granada. Now, investigators had their work cut out for them just with these tips alone. There were more than 6,000 vehicles in the region matching that description, not to mention several other compelling eyewitnesses who provided conflicting details. So details that don't match These two dudes in a car. Over the next 20 years, the FBI would receive more than 10,000 tips about Christina's case, and it seems like they followed up on every single one. After Christina was featured on America's Most Wanted, FBI agents and Michael Williams traveled to Greensboro, North Carolina, following up on two sightings of a girl matching Christina's description at a Sam's Club there. Like the two men in the car and most of the other leads, this one didn't pan out either. Now, in a 2006 interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, John Walsh reflected on his coverage of the Christina Williams case back when he met the family to do America's Most Wanted. He suggested that investigators, quote, should look at the registered sex offenders and people with track records. You and him are thinking exactly the like, Trish. He referenced other cold cases in which, quote, sex offenders who had jumped their parole and probation. Were responsible. The FBI did start interviewing all 576 registered sex offenders and 800 state prison parolees in the area right away, including 37-year-old Charles Holifield. On July 14, 1998, agents showed up at Charles' last registered address, but he had already moved out and failed to register his new address in Sand City. They tracked him down about a week later living out of the RV he parked at his work. Charles said he hadn't registered a new address because he was, quote, basically homeless. Seems to me also like out of all the times that he registered addresses, this was the first time he forgot to, and it's a little coincidental. Agents searched his RV and pickup truck, but they say they found nothing suspicious. San City police officers had recent encounters with Charles, though. His ex-girlfriend, Lisa Johnson, requested their help retrieving some of her belongings from Charles, After their most recent breakup, they helped her on June 27th, two weeks after Christina Williams disappeared, and again on July 4th. Charles claimed he couldn't remember his whereabouts on June 12th. It was about a month ago. His employer, Steve Neff, recalled that Charles left early that day, around 2 p.m., to look at an apartment in Carmel Valley. Charles didn't return to work, and he didn't show up the next day either. Lisa Johnson confirmed that she and Charles had an appointment to look at an apartment on the evening of June 12th, but they couldn't make it because Charles was running late. Lisa said Charles arrived at her mother's place in Pacific Grove around 6.30 p.m. and that they watched TV together for a while. Her mother, Joy Smith, was also home at the time and confirmed her daughter's statement. However, it contradicts what Lisa told her friend, Mary Church, during a phone call that night. Lisa called Mary to complain that Charles made her miss the apartment showing that she hadn't heard from Charles in a couple days, and she didn't know where he was that night either. And just so you know, Mary Church did testify in court to this. Rick Stemple, the Carmel Valley apartment building owner, agreed to show Lisa and Charles that apartment on June 13th instead. The couple arrived separately, and Rick overheard them arguing about where Charles had been the night before. He specifically remembered Charles telling Lisa, quote, it's none of your business. Lisa called her friend Mary Church again to vent about that argument. She shared details about their previous physical fights and how much Charles' violence scared her. Rick ended up renting the apartment to the couple, but only Lisa moved in. She was evicted after about one week due to numerous complaints from her neighbors. Do we know what those complaints were? I wish I did. On August 7, 1998, Charles Holifield was arrested at his job for failing to register his address when he moved to San City, but he was released on bail the next day. Who bailed him out? I'm really not sure. It could have been his brother because his brother was helping him out at this time. It could have also been Lisa Johnson and her mom, although they don't seem to have much money. Could have also been his employer. A little over a month later, Charles pulled up alongside 23-year-old Melanie Paget. She was a local student while she was jogging in Marina. Melanie was also on the small side with straight brown hair. Charles ordered her into his truck at gunpoint, but Melanie was able to escape by running into a nearby apartment complex. She identified Charles and his truck, leading to his arrest on attempted kidnapping charges. Charles pled not guilty, knowing that a conviction would result in his third strike. Once he was arrested, Charles gave his truck to his girlfriend Lisa Johnson, and she quickly sold it. The FBI was never able to locate or search the vehicle. Again. Now, Christmas 1998 marked six months since Christina Williams went missing, and it was her family's first Christmas without her. Their prayers for finding Christina were answered a few weeks later, but not in the way that they had hoped. On the afternoon of January 12, 1999, Erica Murphy, a botanist and employee of the University of California at Santa Cruz, was conducting an invasive species survey on an undeveloped nature reserve the university owned between Reservation Road and Imjin Road in Fort Ord. Near a grove of trees approximately 500 yards off a dirt road, And a quarter mile from the nearest houses, Erica stumbled upon skeletal remains. As she approached them, Erica noticed hair and shreds of clothing, and she quickly decided to call authorities. The remains were about three miles from Christina's home, and the clothing matched what Christina was wearing when she disappeared. Two days after the discovery, dental records officially identified the remains as Christina's. Her mother, Alice Williams, received the bittersweet news on her birthday. On one hand, it was a relief to finally know where Christina was, but now her loved ones had to grapple with the reality that she was gone and figure out what happened to her. Christina's remains were split between two spots. Investigators believe that her killer originally placed her body in a grove of trees and covered her with branches. Animals, probably coyotes, pulled some of her remains away to a second site. There had been too much decomposition to determine a cause of death. The medical examiner estimated Christina died three to nine months earlier so she could have been killed around the same time she disappeared. Now, Charles Hollifield was already the prime suspect in Christina's disappearance, given his record, the problems with his alibi, and the fact that investigators found no evidence pointing to other suspects. Now, they were also able to tie Charles to the area where Christina's remains were found. In 1997, Charles was cited twice for illegally fishing a pond accessible from the same dirt road that led to Christina's remains. On one of those occasions, officers Officers noticed that Charles was carrying a BB gun that resembled a Colt 45 automatic handgun, and this is maybe what he used to threaten Melanie Padgett. Both of Charles' girlfriends at the time, Linda Silver and Lisa Johnson, confirmed that they frequently joined Charles on those fishing trips. They said he knew the area, and Charles admitted to FBI agents that he was familiar with the area, too. In March 1999, the FBI tested Christina's underwear, which was recovered with her remains, for a protein found in semen. The result was negative, so they didn't conduct any further testing at that time. On June 1, 1999... Charles Hollifield was found guilty of Melanie Padgett's attempted kidnapping back in September. So along with his failure to properly register his address as a sex offender, he was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. So that was his kind of combo third strike offense. In September 2009, the FBI raided the home of Charles's brother, looking for letters that they believe Charles wrote to him from prison, asking him to provide an alibi. They never found the letters, but his brother claimed... He never opened mail from Charles. He didn't get anything like that. And they did find a marijuana grow operation in the garage. So that was going to be a problem. Through his attorney, Charles's brother claimed that the marijuana plants belonged to his roommate. Still a problem. You probably knew. But they also said that the FBI had been pressuring him to change his previous grand jury testimony so that they could get an indictment on Charles. Charles's father called the ongoing investigation, quote, a witch hunt and a nightmare for his family. He accused the FBI of harassing his family for years, trying to find a way to convict Charles with Christina Williams' murder. Both of Charles' parents testified before a grand jury, but neither of them publicly defended their son. In fact, his father sent Michael Williams, Christina's father, an email expressing both sympathy and shame. He said, quote, Christina was not my daughter, but I can imagine my granddaughter. Being a fellow military veteran seemed to intensify the feelings of grief and loss that he felt for Michael. He also felt ashamed that his son might be responsible. He said, quote, I still don't know if Charles is guilty. He may be, in which case, if you can prove it, yeah, he's my son, but give him the death penalty. During an interview with the FBI in 2002, Charles Holyfield admitted that he never liked his longtime girlfriend, Lisa Johnson, but he stayed with her so that she would continue to advocate for him outside of prison. Now, in 2008, Lisa told a local newspaper that she believed Charles was framed by police for his previous crimes, except for that 1983 assault he admitted to, which she didn't really have a problem with, it doesn't seem. She and her mother said they felt threatened and harassed by FBI agents, too, after they provided an alibi for Charles. Lisa claimed, quote, They tried to coerce me and break me down and get me to lie. I would never, ever stick up for Chuck if I thought he did it. I'd be the first one to pick up the phone. The FBI case agent at the time denied Lisa's claims, explaining that she was subpoenaed as part of the overall investigation. He told the same paper, quote, I don't make threats. If I'm giving a subpoena to someone, I will explain how the process works that they're being questioned under oath, and that there have been many circumstances where people have been prosecuted for making false statements under oath. If they find that threatening, that's not my intention. In September 2011, after Jennifer Morris's remains were found and police publicly suspected Charles Holifield of her murder, they re-interviewed Lisa Johnson. They questioned her about Christina Williams' case again, but Lisa stuck to her original testimony and re-signed her official statements. Two months later... Lisa surprised everyone by recanting her grand jury testimony. Now, she claimed that in late June 1998, about a week or two after Christina disappeared, around the same time, San City police were helping her collect her things from Charles after that breakup, she says Charles asked her to provide an alibi for him. Lisa said she refused at first because Charles wouldn't tell her what he did, but then he threatened to kill her and her family because he faced a third strike and life in prison, Without her cooperation. In 2016, Monterey County's cold case team requested retesting of the physical evidence collected in Christina Williams' case. While analyzing Christina's underwear under a microscope, they observed a sperm cell and sent the garment for further testing. Now, they clarified around this time, too, that the protein test that was done in 1999 to detect sperm, it's possible that the protein had already broken down, and that's why nothing was seen. Now, with advanced technology, understanding, they were able to find more. Additional sperm cells with DNA were discovered, and a single source profile was developed. It was a 1 in 46 octillion match to Charles Holyfield. Charles was charged with first-degree murder and kidnapping with the intent to commit rape in April 2017, but he pled not guilty. He was now 56 years old and still serving a life sentence for his third strike offense. In 2018, Monterey County officials announced that they would seek the death penalty noting that this was Charles' fourth strike, and then he had two previous serious felonies. In 2019, Charles' attorney reached an agreement with the prosecution and Christina Williams' family, in which Charles waived his right to a jury trial and most of his ability to appeal in exchange for removing that death penalty. The court trial began on March 2nd, 2020, and that date should make anybody itchy. This is right before the pandemic went down. They're getting it in under the wire. The defense presented alternative theories for how Christina met with foul play, emphasizing the numerous eyewitness reports of those two men in a car that didn't match Charles and his truck. Lisa Johnson testified for the defense, but she reverted to her original statements that Charles was with her on June 12, 1998. She claimed that the FBI threatened her with prison time if she continued to provide an alibi for Charles and that that he never asked her to lie for him. Lisa's mother, who had always claimed that Charles was with Lisa at her home the night Christina disappeared, she passed away in 2018 and wasn't available to testify. Lisa also insisted now that Charles never abused her. She's doubling down. Upon cross-examination, though, the prosecutor played a 911 call from November 97, in which Lisa said Charles had hit and pushed her. In the call, Lisa said, quote, he's tearing up everything in the house and I'm afraid of him. Charles could be heard yelling at her in the background. And of course, several witnesses for the prosecution contradicted Lisa's testimony, and the court heard from Charles' surviving victims as well. Now, in response to the spread of COVID-19, the Monterey County Courthouse closed and suspended most of public services beginning March 17th. Charles Holyfield's murder trial was the only thing they allowed to continue. On March 20th, the judge rendered a guilty verdict on both counts. Charles was handed two life sentences, one without the possibility of parole, along with enhancements. These were additional consecutive time that he needed to serve for things like causing great bodily harm and being a repeat offender. It amounted to an additional 52 total years added to his sentence, as well as $540 in restitution, fines, and court fees. To this day, Charles maintains his innocence. Based on the evidence, investigators theorize that Charles abducted Christina Williams about 10 minutes into her walk, either by jumping her from behind or ordering her into his truck at gunpoint or BB gunpoint. He drove her to the spot where her remains were located and most likely raped and then choked her until she died. If Christina had survived the attack and identified Charles, it would have been his third strike. If his next victim, Melanie Paget, had complied instead of running away, she might have been his next murder victim. Instead, her actions ended Charles' assaults on young women and girls in Fort Ord. When John Walsh talked about Christina Williams' case with Anderson Cooper back in 2006, he called closure a TV word, not something that's a reality for the family of victims. It seems that Michael Williams, Christina's father, agrees. After that guilty verdict came down, Michael said, quote, It's not a final closure because we'll never get our daughter back. That's always going to be stuck with us forever. But at least now we don't have to worry about who did it and what those people are doing. On a side note, Michael still hasn't watched Titanic because Christina never got the chance to see it either. There is a plaque in Seaside near where Christina's remains were found. Navy volunteers from where Michael worked helped keep that memorial clean and well cared for. It reads, A gift from God, Christina will always be remembered as a loving daughter to her parents and a compassionate sister to our community. May each of us do everything possible to prevent this from happening to any of our children ever again. Now, like John Walsh, whose show America's Most Wanted came about after he lost his son, Adam, in 1981, Christina's parents have dedicated a lot of their time to helping other families locate their missing children. Remember Ekaterina Sherbakova, Christina's schoolmate who disappeared two months before her? She's still missing. Jennifer Morris's remains were found, but her case is still unsolved. Investigators have yet to charge Charles Holifield in either case, but he remains their prime suspect. And of course, unfortunately, There are many more missing children and unsolved homicides in the area. If you have any information that could help resolve these cases, we encourage you to contact the Monterey County Sheriff's Office by submitting a tip online or calling 831-755-3772. Did Lisa
1: Johnson... Did she ever get any charges against her for perjury? She either lied to that grand jury when she recanted saying, no, no, he forced me to give him this alibi, or she lied when she trial. This was on the top
0: of several pages of my notes. Why was not ex-girlfriend charged? And I could not find anywhere that they ever did charge her. What I did see is his trial in March 2020 that she was brought in from a psychiatric home. She's wheelchair bound. I don't know if she has any other kind of crimes associated with her, if they took pity. I don't know what the situation was, but it doesn't appear that she was ever charged for perjury.
1: It appears that she's complicit in his crimes by
0: offering him these alibis. If she lied about that alibi from the beginning they still wouldn't have had the physical evidence. I don't know that the alibi is what kept them from pursuing him harder or arresting him at all. But we've seen before where people have gone to prison, been convicted without physical evidence just because they didn't have that alibi. We've seen people who went to prison, got life sentences when they had an alibi. So this that was really hard to swallow for me. When was she lying? I believe he was not there that I mean, why would she tell her friend right there? (laughs) That to me tells me, you know, and Mary Church testified, you know, you no, know, this is what Lisa told me that night that he wasn't there. I was on the phone with her when this was happening,
1: and you have the apartment owner who's you know had to show him the apartment the next day. Here, I'm arguing, and her asking him where were you? Right, so clearly he was not with her and her mother
0: who backed her. The mother drives me nuts too. There's a lot to unpack there that I don't think we'll ever know the answers to. And then this is another one of those guys where he's not going to admit to anything. What is it? 46, one in 46 octillion match. And he still says, I didn't do it. You're making it up. I was framed. This is a witch hunt. That's nuts. So I don't know these other cases. And Christina's case, too, you see in a lot of articles before the DNA evidence, even though they felt this is definitely Charles who did this. So many investigators saying and John Walsh, too, saying, I just I don't think this case will ever be solved. And it just took that one miraculous piece of evidence to do it. So don't give up hope, I guess.
1: Retest, retest, retest the evidence. Yes. So if you want to learn more about today's case, head over to our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. There you'll find detailed show notes and all the resources Wendy used to bring you this case. You know, there's always
0: a lot of them, but I will recommend Paula Zahn on the case with Paula Zahn. It's an episode from 2021. You get to see Alice and Michael Williams, Christina's parents. You get to see videos of the area and what the terrain and the base look like. And some of those PSAs done around the time Christina disappeared, including Mariah Carey's. Hmm. So that was kind of interesting just to see how the community really rallied behind her.
1: We invite you to join the discourse and let us know your thoughts on today's or any other case through our website contact page or messaging us on social media. Reach out anytime, tell us about yourself or suggest a new case to cover. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Leave us a five-star review and tell a friend so they can join the discourse too. And as always, if you see something, know something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. I think in this case, it was retesting that evidence and really to the investigators, never giving up.
0: The other thing, too, I thought is, wow, you know, all that hard work that they did, the 10,000 tips, Mm -hmm. they really worked hard on this. And in the end, it was the DNA evidence. But if it was just the DNA evidence, and all those tips hadn't come in, the community hadn't done everything that they had done to help. It was the DNA evidence, plus the fact that they had all of that circumstantial evidence against Charles Holifield from that investigation, the eyewitnesses, everybody else.
1: And like you said, none of that was pointing to any other suspect. But him. So they ruled out like 10,000 tips to the friend, Mary Church, who gave her testimony that said, No, our conversation that night was this.
0: Absolutely. And we've seen cases where the DNA comes through, and because it's someone completely unknown out of the blue, they kind of have a leg to stand on with the appeals process. In this case, you don't. You had that good work and that community coming together and saying what they knew. Mm -hmm. And before we go,
1: remember to stay safe out there, be kind to one another. And let's watch out for one another. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.